Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the podcast, Ignite Our Catalyst. Now, McMaster University's medical school has an acceptance rate of about 4%. Each year, they get over 5,000 applications and only give about 200 offers. Our next guest, Dr. Laura McInnes, is one of the few that got an offer and recently graduated from McMaster's medical school. Uh, on this episode, I got to ask her about her pursuit of the medical field and the application process as it related to getting into medical school. She's currently a resident doctor at Grand River Hospital, and so we got to talk about a slew of topics as it relates to being a doctor. I asked her what she likes and dislikes about her job, imposter syndrome, gender stereotypes, and her views on self-care. Uh, Laura and I actually know each other through the weightlifting community, so we talked about our pursuit and passion for the sport, as well as body image issues as it related to weightlifting and sports in general. This episode was very informative for me because I don't know much about medical school and the application process. I wasn't really ever interested. Um, it was also very eye-opening for me because it gave me a perspective of how difficult her job is. And so when I think about my work and my schedule and how busy I am, you know, it gives me a little perspective of that someone else out there is going through something really challenging like Laura. Her job is extremely tough. She's got a lot of responsibility and she is accountable to a lot of people. And so as I think about uh, my work, I go, you know, yeah, have some perspective. Someone out there is going through something challenging as well. And so I hope as you guys listen to this next episode, you also find it uh, informative and also a bit eye-opening as well. I hope you enjoy our next episode with Dr. Laura McInnes. Thanks for doing this, Laura. No problem. You're a doctor. You're one of my first closer friends that is a doctor. So I'd like to know a little bit more about how you, you got into this line of work. But maybe starting back to like undergrad and what you studied there and then how that path looks like to get you to where you're uh, a resident now. Yeah, I was going to say I'm a resident doctor. So I'm kind of on the path towards full certification, but not quite there. Undergrad after high school, I was always pretty driven towards medicine. I have a family and who are doctors. My, both my grandfathers were physicians, one a pretty prominent orthopedic surgeon, and one was in neurology. Uh, my aunt is an emerge doc as well. So some medicine in the family, not my immediate parents. So I kind of grew up thinking it was on my radar, went into elementary school, high school, still loving math and science. So thinking like, okay, this could be a more serious kind of pursue thing to pursue. I went into undergrad at Western doing medical science with the intention of applying to medical school pretty much from the get-go. So I started first year, took the required courses, um, kind of like typical biology, chemistry, physics stuff. And then all, all with the kind of intention of building my resume for that eventual application to medical school in the end. My decision, my first decision for me was when to apply. So you can apply and get into some schools after third year of undergrad or fourth year, depending on some people will take you, some people won't, depends on some rules. Um, and then another decision was when to write the MCAT, which is a standardized admission test, kind of like the LSAT for law. Um, it's like a whole day long of sitting on the computer answering questions and you're graphed on a normal curve, that kind of stuff. So um, wrote the MCAT after second year, decided to apply kind of on a, I don't want to say on a whim because I was always going to apply, but I wasn't sure about applying in third year or not. Um, I talked to my aunt for a while, who's uh, the doc, and she told me, you know, why don't you just apply, go for it, see what happens. So I had a pretty conservative application to some schools in Ontario, kind of just more almost like try out the application process. Ended up getting an interview to McMaster, ended up getting in from that interview. So happened pretty quickly. <laughs> I was pretty young. I think I was like 19 when I got in. So it felt very 
fast and exciting and soon and what I wanted kind of all at once. So it was a very exciting time. Uh, and then I started medical school in, I guess it was the, f- the fall of 2014 in Abic Master's three-year program. So it's, it's a little bit accelerated with no summers. So it's kind of short and intense. <laughs> So I started that program in 2014, kind of went through medical school. I don't know how much more you want to know about medical school right now, but that's yeah. kind of how I got there. Yeah, there's briefly. actually a lot that, that I want to ask you about. So sure. the first thing I heard was you got into medical school at 19. Mm-hmm. So did you also speed through high school a little bit? Sort of. So when I was quite young, I skipped a grade of school. So I was a little bit ahead by a year there too, growing up. Um, but that was the only year. And then my birthday's in like late spring. So I just happened to be like 19. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I was thinking like I would be 21 at third year. Yeah. But I guess if you skip one grade and then late summer, then that doesn't yeah. work out. Uh, yeah. I, was turning, I was turning 20. Like yeah. I was in that, sure. I was in that stage. Yeah. 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 So it sounds like it, w- was it smooth sailing in terms of the path leading up to getting in? Cause it sounds like it was fairly straightforward with the right kind of family support when it comes mm-hmm. to having doctors and, and kind of knowing what the job's going to be like and probably having going through the same application process. And then mm-hmm. just like you had the plan, I guess you had the grades and then sort of the smarts to go with it. Yeah, I would say it was um, smoother than some other stories I've heard, but I did carry a lot of anxiety about, am I going to get in? you know, will I make it? There's all these horrifying stats about uh, medical school and how there's like 6,000 applications and only 200 people make it in. And you just look at yourself and you're like, well, why am I, why do I deserve to be one of that 200 people? Like what makes me different than everyone else? And the reality is it's not usually a lot. It's kind of an element of, of lack of element of the, I think the interview is really important, how you perform in person um, for the kind of, the, especially Mac, the soft skills they're looking for. But yeah, I mean, I, I went in to university with the focus of medical school. So I didn't, I didn't really go through that phase. Some people go through of like, is this the career for me? Should I apply? I was pretty set. I don't really think I knew at the time what medicine was or like what the actual, my job would be. I don't think I knew what I was getting into. But I, I had a vague idea, and I guess that was enough to kind of spur me in that direction. Yeah. Um, yeah. And your friends in medical school, were they like you in that the path was a little bit smooth? Or was it that they were trying to figure things out during the undergrad? There's a range. Like the average, I think the average Mac entrant was still like entered after fourth year university undergrad. So we still had the average person kind of deciding the medical school at some point during undergrad, applying, getting in. But there was still a lot of people in our class who were, had either their master's degrees, had PhDs, even had other careers. We had a vet, a lawyer, like people who had whole other lives before medical school. So it was a big range. Yeah, because I, I would saying. imagine that your story is quite rare where you had that plan yeah. and it worked out. Because um, for me yeah. also with grad school, it was the same. Like. Mm-hmm. Once I hit grade 11, I knew I wanted to do psychology, and then I yeah. knew immediately I, I needed grad school. And in order to get into grad school, you needed honors. And then, yeah, kind so of I, I, from there. So I did all those things to kind of set myself up for success, and it worked out. But yeah. I recognize that that's completely like an outlier. Like yeah. it's not usually like that. Yeah. So I, I know what you mean. Like I definitely prepared for the application, and I did everything that I could. And I have the advantage of like realistically good genetics on my side. Like it's not hard for me to memorize or get good grades and that's just kind of luck of the draw and I appreciate that but there's also I think a big amount of luck in the whole application from for medical school uh, and I just I felt lucky like I felt like oh my god it worked out 
I'm so grateful. I'm so happy. Um, I had people ask me like, you know, do you wish you got in later and that you didn't spend your 20s in medical training or whatever? And I'm like, well, not really, because I watched so many of my friends go through that stage after undergrad where they graduate with the bachelor of whatever, and then they have no idea what they're doing next. And they have this really kind of unsure phase. And I kind of skipped that in a way to a pretty like sure career. So I'm grateful for that. And yeah, I definitely felt a lot of anxiety about getting into medical school. And then I worried about everything else after. <laughs> yeah. Did you doubt the decision when you got your letter? Like, no, there's no way I got in. Or were you like, okay, this letter like probably wasn't sent to the wrong person. Like, it's going to be me. So it's kind of a funny story. I was actually in Cuba. And <laughs> my I gave my parents my like email access to answer for me. They answered for me to letter. And I logged on. It was already read. I didn't see it. And logged off again and then I logged on again a couple hours later just because and I found I saw that email my mom was like freaking out and it's kind of cute but I felt I think like the biggest emotion I felt at the time was relief because I had worked so hard for the school and with that letter I was like okay at least that goal is now met now you can focus on the next stage which is actually getting through medical school which is a whole nother uh, thing, but that first getting in stage was, was going to be one of the hardest things I had to do of the whole process. Can you talk a little bit about the application process? So I know there's the MCAT, which I, I yeah. think the, uh, the content is just these base knowledge of science and biology and that kind of topic. Yeah. And then what else was part of that application package? Yeah. It's, it was a lot of work. Um, it's your resume. Um, it's some personal letters, usually paragraphs about either specific topics, questions, or like just in general, you know, why medicine. Um, and then a lot of references, kind of writing out all your jobs and all your awards and research and, and that kind of stuff, which builds they, the base, yeah. Sorry, um, do they know or do they tell you what uh, they're looking for in those letters? Kind of like, why medicine? And then you, know, you want your answer to be genuine, but you don't want to be the, I want to help people, because they'll be like, wow, you can help people in different ways. Why yeah. medicine, right? Like, why so not like, nursing or something, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know, because I think it was only U of T that I actually wrote letters for in Ontario in my kind of more limited application. Mac only looked at GPA and MCAT for deciding who got an interview. Um, and, and even of the MCAT, they only looked at the verbal reasoning score, which is not even based on science. It's based on reading passages and answering comprehension questions kind of mm -hmm. thing. So MAC was kind of different, but that's kind of the theme to MAC is it's a little bit out there compared yeah. to some other methodologies. And then you also had an interview at MAC? Yeah. So I so I had the application process, and then you wait for interview mm -hmm. invitations, and then you get, go through the interview process. Okay. So what was at the, uh, the interview? So MAC was 10 10-minute 10 stations. It was called a multiple mini-interview. And each station, you walk up, you know, wearing your like nice business suit. There'd be a sign on the door with a little piece of paper. You'd open it, look at a question, and you'd have eight minutes to talk about it. So I had ones that were like acting scenarios, like you just walk into a situation and people watch you, see how you react. I had ones that were like topic based, like let's talk about this policy, let's talk about this, or and then I had other ones that were pretty random. I can't really say what they were, but like some of them were just very like yeah. out there. So it wasn't yeah. even just medicine based. No, no, huh. no. It was like getting to know you, your personality, how you respond to to things. Like, yeah, it was, it was very different. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, I, I can speak to the uh, GPA and MCAT score you said mm -hmm. a little bit more because uh, in IO Psych, a big thing we do is selection for mm -hmm. for job performance. So like. How do you hire people so that they do the most well yeah. in that job you're hoping to, to have them succeed in? Mm -hmm. And the biggest predictor is general intelligence. 
mm-hmm. which GPA isn't usually a good predictor because you have sort of grade inflation depending on what school you're in. Mm-hmm. But the MCAT is a standardized exam. Yeah. So they know that in terms of the pool they're receiving, uh, it's how you are relative to the norm. Mm-hmm. And so you might not be the smartest person, but if you're the smartest in the group, then you're kind of the best that we have. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. in terms of like selecting you based on those things, that makes a lot of sense. And that's what yeah. Waterloo does in our IO program as well as they don't select based on sort of those soft skills, mm-hmm. which are I thought would be important uh, in terms of going into practice. But I also mm-hmm. kind of learned that they don't care about sort of applied work as much as they do about doing good research. Mm-hmm. And that usually means that uh, you need sort of that general intelligence. Yeah. Um, so, so there's that piece, but those scenarios kind of, it's kind of cool. Like I wish I, you know, would know a little bit more about what, what that meant, but yeah, soft skills are important. I guess you're always thrown into situations you can't really prepare oh, yeah. for in the job. So that can sure. be important. Yeah. For... And I actually went back this year to, to mark the, the interview for medical school as now a resident. And it was a very different experience, obviously on the other, on the other side. Um, but it was really interesting. Like I had a fairly almost mundane question, I would say, but the answers I was getting were very a huge range from being really interesting, really colorful people to being very like flat and not really interactive. And you can really couldn't delineate who was a good candidate and who like, I kind of just tried to picture who I want to work with, but. And yeah. they get, did they give you criteria for what you should be marking them on? It was pretty vague. It was like, you enjoy talking to them, like not, not, not phrasing, but okay. it was like, it was more soft skills. Yeah. It was, there was no knowledge questions. Yeah. So yeah. ultimately, it was you had that frame of references. Would I want this person to be in merge with me? Yeah, like would I want to work with them? What like could I teach them? Would they be a good medical student? Hmm. Um, do I like them? Yeah, basically. Huh, that's kind of yeah. cool. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a reasonable way to pick candidates. I'm sure there's tons of other people who have different philosophies. Yeah, who want like you know, I think U of T is a little bit more academic, but yeah. There was like an ex-Google exec or maybe current exec, and he said one of the things that I like to use to select, you know, good candidates for Google mm-hmm. is like have them tell me about something that they're passionate about. Yeah. And like yeah. you want to sense whether or not there's some excitement and enthusiasm mm-hmm. for something in their life that's not work-related because mm-hmm. that means they put in some effort. So you and I could talk about weightlifting for yeah, like yeah. hours. Yeah, yeah, for days, and, yeah. Right, and then, then it's like, okay, they, they, they show some sort of dedication, which is probably going to be pretty important for yeah. ultimately when we put them in, in a job situation. So maybe it's something like that. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an interesting experience. Yeah, it's good to be part of it on both sides. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. cool. Yeah, it's, it's also kind of full circle, right? Yeah, yeah. And to be so much more relieved circle. on the other side, right? Yeah, you don't so much more. To, so, so let's talk about medical school. Okay. Um, what is that like? <laughs> so, I mean, I went to Mac. I had my experience for Mac. Um, and as I said before, it being known as a little bit of a different uh, kind of teaching philosophy in terms of its medical school. It's more small group based. It's more like they call it problem based learning, less lectures and more like your own kind of initiative learning. So it was intense. The first 14 or 15 months is mostly classroom-based, small group-based, and then the last half is all clinical, so all in the hospital. And there's a pretty stark contrast between the two in terms of what, what you, like, what's expected of you, um, how much free time you have. You start to figure out in the second half what being a doctor is actually like, and it's for most quite surprising at times and quite shocking than just sitting, you know, sitting in a classroom and reading out, out of a textbook because that's not what patients want. They want someone they can talk to and explain things to. Um, they don't want someone who, like they want someone who obviously he knows their stuff, but they want a personable doctor, I find these days. Um, yeah. So what did you think it was like to be a doctor 
in the first 14, 15 months? And then how was that different once you started doing clinical work? Uh, it's hard to put my exact finger on it, but it was more, I think I just had a more like naive attitude towards medicine and the medical system and what it could really do for people. And just contrasting that to the realities of what medicine can actually offer. And it's usually kind of lets patients down a little bit more than you would expect. So there was more of like the, you're going to be a hero, right? Like to, as a doctor. Almost. Like, I don't know. I've never really appealed to the whole like heroism idea. I don't really care about being a hero, but mm. I know what you're saying. Like, it's like you want to help people. You want to do something good and you still can. Like, I don't want to, you know, take it the wrong way, but you're just, you're more naive and about what being a doctor actually is before you do it. Are there yeah. any parts that you don't like? <laughs> At, at times, definitely the hours. At times, you have to do 26-hour shifts and expect you to be pretty alert on the other side, which is just, it's just hard. You do kind of get used to it, like your body adapts almost in a way, but it's not a natural thing to stay awake for 26 hours, making clinical decisions, like not even just staying awake watching TV, like actually making, using your brain theoretically. Um, I had one where I was in the, you know, 3am typing out admission orders for a patient in Emerge and I fell asleep typing <laughs> and I woke up like 10 minutes later and I wrote like five pages of ease <laughs> and yeah. I was like, oh my God, and just uh, stuff like that sticks, like kind of stays with you. But... Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Joe Rogan and he recently had a podcast with someone who is the director of the Institute of Sleep Research or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So it was really cool because it was a full, I don't know, two, three hour, uh, podcast on just his research on sleep and how important sleeping mm -hmm. is and like he's citing all these stats that i can't repeat so i won't but it's just yeah. like you need sleep yeah and yeah, when yeah. you don't sleep enough you you know accidents can happen when you're driving and, yeah uh, i think he briefly touched upon doctors mm -hmm. which we had talked about before where it's sort of like a, a old boys club like we did yeah. it so therefore exactly. you got to do it too yeah we did 48 hours so 24 is nothing yeah. so it's just and he even had some stats about like when you get an you know increment of uh, or a decrease in an hour of sleep or whatever standard deviation it mm -hmm. impacts the types of decisions you make and it's you know like wrong decisions. Yeah, it's crazy stuff. And yeah. it's crazy that these are doctors you're working with mm -hmm. that would probably be prescribing sleep, you know, reg regimens for patients to get yeah. better about something, yeah. and then you're not doing what you're preaching. It's like counseling patients about exercise or eating well, and then you look at yourself and you're like eating some like Tim Hortons sandwich at like 3 a.m. and you're yeah. like, what am I actually doing here? But, so there's, yeah. there also seems to be what you're mentioning earlier about a disconnect between theory and practice, mm -hmm. which is a lot of what I'm getting now in grad school is yeah. like, I, I, I know a little bit about some leadership research, but in terms of how to implement a certain theory or, mm -hmm. or try to figure out a problem in the workplace, it's different and mm -hmm. skills that we don't actually get taught. When you had that shift from 14, 15 months of reading to mm -hmm. like applying, what was that like having that shift? It's a steep learning curve. It's very, um, it's very kind of shocking. It, it goes from kind of amassing very like science-based kind of pathophysiology knowledge and shifting your knowledge base to be more clinical. So being more like, okay, fine, this patient has asthma by this mechanism that I don't really care about anymore. How do I actually treat that? How do I monitor them? How do I you know, ask them about their symptoms properly. So it's a much different type of knowledge. And I mean, in medical school, we do try to teach clinical skills, uh, but it's not as emphasized as like learning medical knowledge is. I think, I think rightly so. Like you do need to have a foundation of knowledge, but that transition from pathophysiology to clinical is very stark. And it's kind of, 
it's not as well taught because it's more of an intuitive thing you pick up along the way, if that makes sense. And so you don't think that you could teach what you ended up learning and still are learning um, being a resident or that practical portion in a classroom setting? Well, I think you could teach parts of it or, or to, like, to a point. I mean, you could teach it. But when you, when you, you know, when you have a patient in front of you and you need to come up with a plan and, and, and like, you know, come to the right interview questions, there is an art to it. It's art of medicine. Um, and that, that can't really be taught. That's kind of more come, comes about with learning, with practice, with, you know, spending hours and hours and hours with patient interviews. And, yeah. I want to ask you about imposter syndrome. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Did you experience it in, in medical school and do you experience it now being a resident? I, I think if you're like a normally well-adjusted person, you probably experience it at some point during medical school or residency or both. Um, most of my classmates would echo that feeling of, uh, you know, because we're, we're told the stats of the thousands of people who tried to be in our spot and you're kind of sitting there like, again, like I said before, like, why me? Like, what makes, what makes it so great about what I have to offer? And I think in medical school, you kind of start to get used to, okay, I'm a medical student, I'm doing fine. And then you graduate, and then you have this new label of doctor. I remember Scotiabank called me up and was like, we should change your credit card to doctor. I was like, I don't really want that. But it's such a, it's a good feeling, but it's, it's scary because it carries so much more responsibility. So it's a, it's, a, it's a good change, but it comes with a lot of responsibility. And I think that responsibility leads to some self-doubt and uh, questioning your own decisions. Having gone through medical school and now being a resident, how did you or you and your colleagues manage this imposter syndrome? I think just like talking about it with each other. We all have had similar feelings. Like often if, if a classmate had a question about something, someone else would have that question too. Like the same kind of stuff you hear about in other, other courses. Really just uh, peer, kind of peer debriefing was, was the best. Yeah. And when you talk to each other, it's sort of like normalizing, like, oh, you didn't get that, neither did I. Yeah, or, yeah. Or like, I didn't know that either. Yeah, it is. It's usually like about a lack of knowledge rather than confirming your own knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Despite the lack of sleep and, and all that kind of <laughs> stuff, like, do you enjoy being a resident doctor right now? Yeah, I love my job. Like, I... I um, have plans in the future to apply to emergency medicine kind of fellowship and with the intention of being emerged doc full time. So the emerge is where I really love to be. It's where I really look forward to going. Um, so I just finished a couple months of it and my, my heart was pretty full. I was pretty happy to be there. So on other rotations, I'm not always as as uh, initially eager, but I still do recognize you know, my job is, is important and uh, it's really cool. It has really cool moments. Yeah. So three-year med school, you graduate, you're now Dr. McInnes, and then you're a resident for how long, and then what happens? Yeah, so I'm doing my family medicine residency right now, which is two years in Canada. And then I said before, with the intention of doing an extra one-year fellowship in Emerge. So for me, it'll be three years. Um, I write a bunch of exams at the end of family medicine. I'll get my certification in family medicine. Uh, and then again, exams at the end of the Emerge part. Uh, some people will just stop, though, at the family medicine part and not go any and further. That's that gets you a GP, like a general practitioner? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. So it gets you a license to practice independently because right now I have an MD and I have the title doctor, but it's it's as a caveat of being supervised. So it's I can't go off on my own and start my own clinic and see people without being supervised at all. Um, like how much people people are sometimes unsure about how much you actually are supervised. And it kind of depends on how well the person knows you, like your, your staff doctor or attending doctor, they're called. Um, and how experienced you are in a particular thing, how much you are actually like physically supervised, but uh, it's usually appropriate amount, I find. So I would imagine there's a, 
huge expectation for a patient if they saw you at the hospital to know something. And obviously, yeah. you don't always know everything. So do you ever encounter a case where you're like, I actually have no idea what I'm going to do here. Give me a second. I'll be right back. <laughs> for sure. For sure. And I think uh, just honesty, like patients will respect you more if we're saying like, you know, I, I, I think it might be this, but I'm just going to go check or I'm going to go ask my colleague or supervisor and just be, you know, don't make a big deal out of it. And uh, people will respect that as, you know, because they do recognize you're still a learner. I usually introduce myself as, hi, you know, either I'll say Laura if it's like a, or if it's a kid, or I'll say, you know, or someone older I find, I'll say Dr. McKinnis. But then I'll say I'm a resident doctor in Emerge. I'm a resident doctor here in the clinic. So I won't say like, I, I don't want to pass it off as if I'm the only person they're going to see that day. Um, potentially they may just see me, but it'll be me talking to someone else as well. So I don't want to just appear like I'm the be all and end all. Do you ever encounter a situation where someone looks at you and goes, you're a doctor oh like, for sure yeah. oh my god so i'm i mean i recognize i'm young i'm female i'm blonde it's not the typical picture of a physician and being especially a young physician i get a lot of kind of hesitation i find if i'm like if i just introduce myself with confidence and say hi i'm doctor whatever people will accept it they won't really question it but it's the moments when like i'll be walking by a patient i'll be like hey nurse bring me bring me water and I'm in no means trying to say this to dissuade nursing or their role, but the reality is my role in the hospital is not a nursing role or a whatever else role. Like it is the resident role. So I do want to play that role. And the way I look can sometimes be frustrating for that just because it's not the typical, typical picture. How do you deal with that? I just like, will politely say like, oh, I'm actually not who you're looking for, or I'll get your nurse or something like that. If I can help them, then I will. Like, they want a glass of water, like, and I have time. Sure, I'll get them a glass of water, but not every time because there are people who can do that for me too. So it's just, I don't really take it personally. Like, I used to be, like, kind of more worried about that and how I would come off. But I find it sometimes is actually more of an advantage, uh, kind of coming across as not a big established position and then people walk in and as long as you're nice and confident people respect you and what you have to say i think if you if you said oh hi i'm a doctor and oh maybe we should do this or, or like when you're very nervous that would be a worse end result than if i just said who you are if that yeah. makes sense yeah definitely yeah. i um i asked that question out of pure self-interest yeah. because I'm, I am Asian, so yeah, I look yeah. like, I don't look 26, almost 27. Yeah. And so I ultimately want to be in consulting or in the corporate world. So mm -hmm. like, you need a little bit of life experience. You need to have some scars on your face, but yeah. like, there's no way I'm getting that anytime soon. Yeah. Like, not <laughs> yeah. until I'm like 55. So yeah. I'm like, I, I would imagine that once I work in probably corporate environments is where I'll start off looking is like, oh, mm -hmm. I'm going to have to be dealing with those perceptions. And I'm just like, Really curious to hear yeah. how like how you manage that because obviously you don't look that old. And, I, well, I'm not, yeah. right? I'm not old. Yeah. <laughs> My patients be like, "How old are you?" And I'll just be like, "Old enough to be a doctor." Like yeah. I don't, I usually say, "Right," but I think it's just kind of fake it till you make it attitude. Um, I got a side note. I, I got glasses as well, which is kind of a superficial detail, but it actually helps. I find, and I try to make sure my identification is quite uh, like either quite well displayed so people can either read my identification and know who I am. I find that helps too. Yeah, you earlier speaking though, like if they don't think you are a doctor, they have lower expectations. <laughs> and then Sometimes, when you, when yeah. you come in with confidence, it might yeah. actually help you. So I was thinking like, you know what, just 
it's okay if they don't think you are because then yeah. you pull them out of the water because <laughs> yeah. they have a lower bar set for you in <laughs> sure, their life yeah. anyways. But I don't yeah. know whether or not that works all the time because no. you need some you need some time to have a real interaction for you to be able yeah. like, to prove yourself to show mm-hmm. that you have good clinical judgments. Like yeah. it's that snap judgment. Grab me in water. You're like I'm not who you're looking for. Yeah. You don't have time to make that impression. No, you don't. And I find. And I used to think like, you know, it was old, only like the older generation who would think I was what I was, but it's really everyone. Like I had a guy my age mistake me just for something else. And I was like, wow, really? And then even people will assume like talking about their doctor, they'll say they'll use he pronouns mostly all the time. And there's just little details like that. They kind of catch me like, well, actually they could be female. Like <laughs> I am so much more aware of those pronouns. Yeah. I say he or she. In mm-hmm. almost every instance now, driving situation. Oh wow, that person like you know is a bad driver. I'm gonna somehow if I need to say he or she, I'll say both. Yeah, doctor, same or, thing, or yeah. like plumber. It doesn't matter. I, yeah. I'm trying to recognize a little bit more that it could be both yeah. sexes. Mm-hmm. So, did you experience any bias or discrimination? Maybe not explicitly. I imagine not so. Much. Maybe as well, but implicit sort of that bias that oh you know blonde girl being doctor has it impacted the way you do your work or how you felt about your work you know i don't really think so at least not explicitly to me um the closest thing i would say would be like sometimes on orthopedic rotations which are a bit of a boys club there's some comments in the operating room nothing too nothing actually like very explicit at all but some subtleties but they're usually not directed at you ever Uh, people are pretty accepting you know once you introduce yourself of who you are so i haven't really experienced that i would say People are pretty open once you explain yourself. Yeah, and I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic. I don't know much about like the social psychology stuff around like prejudice and racism yeah. and like, discrimination, but like it can be an implicit attitude you have, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But it's different if you like acted upon that attitude. So mm-hmm. maybe the knee jerk reaction is like, okay, my prototype of a doctor is male, but okay, like I'm interacting with a real doctor mm-hmm. and she's female, okay. Like I had that implicit thought, but I'm not going out like, oh, you're not a doctor. So yeah. it's okay if it doesn't actually impact action and behavior yeah. with the other person. I mean, like, I, like I'll like i come into a room and I can see on the patient's face, like, I'm not who they were expecting. But then they just kind of correct themselves and they, like, go on and they tell me their history, like, normal. And, and usually you just, like, nothing really comes out of it. Um, but, it, like, I can see reactions, but do I take it personally? No, because... I, you know, it's just the reality of the job. It's like it's a, it used to be an old boys club, and now it's not. But it's just kind of, uh, you know, stereotypes play a large role. So. so one thing I'm really impressed by you is you train after you work or just having those long shifts. So, mm-hmm. like, how do you do it? Because, like, obviously I know you from the gym, and weightlifting is, like, each session is, like, two and a half hours, three hours long, right? But you yeah. just came out of a 26-hour shift, and... And you might still show up or, or you know, sleep and then come the next day. Like, how do you do it? Yeah. I mean, I, I was always an athlete my whole life. Uh, I was used to be a competitive figure skater when I was younger up until uh, medical school, really. Even undergrad, I was still skating. So I always grew up balancing athletics and academics and with both being uh, an improvement to each other. So when I went to medical school, I, st- I stopped figure skating because I just didn't have the time to commit to ice time anymore because you have to say like, you know, 8 a.m. every day and I just couldn't do that. So my friend, my tutorial group was like, hey, do you want to try strength training? And at first I was like, had a very negative attitude and I was like, not really, but I decided to go and I loved it, of course. 
and I saw him and his friends Olympic lifting and fell in love with the sport. And that was, I guess, close to four years ago now, and I haven't really looked back. But progressing to the, through the sport and having a competitive athletic outlet has been awesome for me. I really thrive on like challenge and not, I mean, I have enough academic challenge in my life, but to have a physical challenge as well is very beneficial for me, I think. Um, as well as like, like a competitive, I'm a competitive person. So having, you know, competitions to, to work towards is very motivating for me. So, you know, if I work a long day, do I always want to go into the gym? No, I don't. But I rely on my motivation and my habits to kind of get me there. And then, you know, most days I actually do want to go to the gym because I find if it was a stressful day or a stressful shift, I find going to the gym is so different the rest of my day that I really enjoy it and value it. So it's, it, it's kind of uh, therapeutic, definitely. So how does it work in your mind where you are physically exhausted from a long work shift and you're like, I'm going to go to the gym now to do this arguably even more physically taxing <laughs> event in this like intense short amount of time. So like, how, how does that feel therapeutic for you? Because it, you know, it's counterintuitive and I well, get it, but also like, I yeah. know how it works for you in your head. I mean, to be fair, I... Uh, compared to other residencies, I work relatively fewer of the 26-hour shifts than other other people. So there's other people out there who work longer hours than me, for sure. So I have that benefit on my side. And then I never actually would go in after a 26-hour shift. I would go home and sleep first and then maybe come back in the afternoon or something. But I don't know. It's just I uh, if I'm you know really exhausted, really tired, then fine. Maybe I'll skip that day. I won't come in. But it, it's, it's really a habit, I think. It's, this, it's a very strong habit. Yeah, so for you, like, just part of your life growing up, athletics was a big part. So yeah. it's kind of easy to, to just continue this other thing that's also athletic mm -hmm. and you could see the value in it. Yeah. But some of your other colleagues who are doctors, but, like, they don't go to gym. What is their outlet? Because I would imagine that having an outlet is very important. Mm -hmm. But, it, like, you know, what's the range of things that people end up doing? Yeah, stress it. it's definitely a range. Like I hear things about like cooking, being with their significant other, like movies, traveling, which you can't do all the time, but sometimes like shopping, kind of like little things like that. Um, sports is definitely up there. I don't know if I know is that many colleagues who are as kind of uh, intensely involved in a sport as, as maybe I am or some of the people are. But again, that's my own choice. Like I could scale back if I wanted to, but I choose to to train because I love it. Um, but other people, I think other people have like a variety of things they like to do and pets and stuff. I don't know. Do they teach you about like this concept of self-care in medical school? Or is it more like you're an adult, it's intuitive? Um, we had a couple like lectures or talks about self-care. Um, they were all pretty vague and pretty like, make sure you do self-care because it's important. But they didn't really say like, you know, this is what you should actually be shooting for or doing because it's not really one thing either it's like there's many ways to have self-care it's not like you have to go to the gym for two hours every day so we, we did have some awareness of it in medical school mac is definitely more of what i would say like a like a touchy-feely kind of school so they were more in touch with that emotional well-being side of things um as compared to some other more classic medical schools like uft heard a little bit less of that from them but they it was talked about because burnout is a huge issue now in medicine it's kind of a hot topic do they teach you anything about basic psychology in medical school? Because in this instance, it's about self-care, so it's mm -hmm. sort of psychology within yourself, but then there's also that like bedside manner piece that you need to have when you work with patients. I was talking with a friend, uh, Siobhan, she was on the third episode, and we're mm -hmm. like, why, why is there a stigma with mental health? 
And, mm-hmm. and, and in terms of clinical psychology, now we take a medical model mm-hmm. where it's about, you know, this is a, a disease you have and let's treat it like it would be. So what's mm-hmm. the diagnostic criteria? Let's identify the symptoms and let's give you a treatment plan, whatever that mm-hmm. may be. And I'm speaking outside of my area, but it's That's something okay, like yeah. that, right? Yeah, it is. But yeah. like, it's like, okay, so why would people in medicine who take a medical model not also take a medical model when it comes to mental health or self-care mm-hmm. like it's important but it's like max touchy-feely mm-hmm. and that immediately that knee jerk is like oh yeah traditionally it's not like that but like, yeah shouldn't it be like that I, I think attitudes are changing like the new docs who are graduating are more in tune with those skills but the reality is it's a hard job it's going to push you to your limits if you don't have any kind of self-care you are going to burn out so i think it's a high risk career for for burnout and emotional fatigue but i don't necessarily know that we're coping right way with it i think there's there's it's getting better i would say yeah how would you change the existing system like maybe a medical school or something like what would you want to have happen to make it a little bit better for the next wave of candidates coming out um i think i would put a, a max cap on hours to about 15 hours or so um they, they i think they do that in quebec uh, don't quote me on that, but um, they changed it recently uh, to residents having a max. I think it is 15 in Quebec, and that's produced some some good results. I think I would do that as being the first thing I would do. Um, continue the conversations about self-care, and I think you're right. I would actually maybe explicitly teach a little bit more about psychology and you know bedside manner and how to interact with the patient, because it's never explicitly taught. You're kind of assumed you'll figure it out, and most people will based on the selection process of MAC, which is very, like, you know, looking for soft skills, looking for how you interact, but it's never it's never explicitly taught. I think that would benefit people too. Yeah, because even the term soft skills implies that it's not quantifiable. Yeah, but there are ways that you can show bedside manner. Like, mm-hmm. how, how do you how do you demonstrate empathetic listening? Like, I'm just showing a patient that you you mm-hmm. hear what they're saying and you understand yeah, you what they're going through, right? That kind yeah. of stuff, right? It's like yeah. it seems pretty. I would imagine that's what they teach you a little bit in clinical psychology, yeah. right? And it's like that, those would be good skills to kind of just reiterate, if, you know, mm-hmm. if not actually teach. They do teach it a, a bit, I would say, but the majority of it comes from your own experiences, kind of just being thrown in and figuring it out yeah. on your own. Because it'd be really cool if, like, you could get into the head of a patient who's going through a certain problem and be like, "That's what they're feeling right now," mm-hmm. independent of the whole physical aspect yeah. of it. It's like. Yeah. What they need to hear right now is yeah. this thing. Yeah. And if you said that, it'd be so much more reassuring mm-hmm. um, or, or whatever, right? Like, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm just I'm making up some Yeah, no. I mean, we do have what's called standardized patients. We we would uh, practice with someone sort of the people who are trained in the community and we do like a medical, either like learning medical exams or for interviews. And sometimes they would give feedback, which we were like super tangible, super helpful, I found. Um, and we were, I remember one thing we were taught was how to break bad news. There's a structure to it that you can follow. So things like, you know, assessing what they want to know, getting to a comfortable place. There's a whole kind of network of how to do it. And we were explicitly taught that skill with a little bit of opportunity to practice it. Yeah. Have you heard of the five stages of grief? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that yeah. like, was that through medical school or like through just like just life. psychology? Yeah. yeah. Like, have you encountered that when you're breaking bad news to someone that they're kind of going through those stages of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, um, no, acceptance? I mean, yeah, I'm obviously not tell at once. Um, I would say in the context of emerge, sometimes you'll you'll find things um, like new diagnoses that are that are sad. So new cancer, um, new thing, other anyways, just a variety of things. So 
the the most common di uh, kind of reaction that I'll see at least firsthand is usually shock. So they'll be sitting there, kind of can't process. Um, so you just give. I just finally just give them time. I just sit there quietly, say nothing, and then let them kind of react and respond. Has been my kind of learned approach to it. I, I haven't really seen too much of anger, but it's definitely out there. People will get mad, but I think I'd have the same approach to quietly to yeah. anger. Yeah. Let them vent first. Yeah, know. let them vent. They're angry. You know? So, so your suggestion earlier about just doing uh, 15 hours, right, at a mm -hmm. cap there, is there a shortage of doctors right now that they need to just push everyone's hours, like, you know, that much higher? Yeah, it's a, it's a complex situation because residents are usually concentrated around academic centers so hamilton toronto london that kind of stuff um, and residents run the hospital basically so staff physicians will come in you know the extent of their involvement is sometimes quite limited and residents will kind of run the show they'll do the rounds they'll see the patients in the clinic um, they'll kind of touch base with them but i think if we restricted hours staff docs might have might have to step in more which they obviously wouldn't like um, and then there's the issue of, okay, you know, if we capped it 15 hours, then you would have more frequent shifts, but they would be shorter. And I don't really know which way would be better. It's kind of just an idea. I just know when I hit, like, at, you know, you, you look at your watch and it's like 11 p.m. there since like 6 a.m. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm only like you know, two-thirds of the way through. It's just this awful feeling. Yeah. <laughs> you just feels terrible. Yeah. Like, I, I can't even wrap my head around how I would feel. When it's terrible. 6 a.m. to 11 p.m., you're like, oh my god, I'm not mm. even close to done. It like, feels terrible. It's It feels like, it, it was like depressing. <laughs> like, yeah. it was just... Do you ever, yeah. like, on some days, or maybe when you first started, like, have that, at that moment at 11 p.m., and just, like, cry? Like, <laughs> oh my god, like, I'm not, not even close to done. Like, this sucks. No, I don't think I'd cry, okay. but I know what you mean. Like, I would feel sad. I mean, um... The reality is residents, you know, all across Canada are doing this and they're all getting through it. So you're just expected to kind of go through it. And, and you do, you manage, you just keep going you know, one hour at a time, one step at a time, and then eventually you're done and you can go home. Um, and as I said before, I don't do as much calls as some of my other colleagues do in you know, surgical specialties. They definitely do a lot more call than, than I ever would. So I can't really, I don't really have the, I have it a bad, to be honest, right now. But it's, it's, it's a tough feeling. It's, it's hard. It's just hard. I yeah. wish I could. I wish this was my area of research because I'd be very motivated to do something like this. Yeah. But like you, you, you compare different departments in the hospital. Mm -hmm. One week we'd be keep doing this twenty-six hour thing, and mm -hmm. the other week we'd be fifteen. And you're like, let's look at whatever outcomes matter to you, but maybe like just less mistakes being made. I don't mm -hmm. know how that's quantified, but like I bet you you would see a difference. Yeah, controlling for whatever you want to control. Yeah, like, it's like that must be like. And would numbers work to, to mm -hmm. prove a point? Because I would imagine it like intuitively makes sense. Mm -hmm. And how is a 15 hour shift even, even any better? Uh, it's better than yeah. 26, but like, you know, yeah. you probably can only be go, go, go for like 10 hours. Well, yeah. like, how is 15 even like that? Okay, I'll accept that. Like, I don't know. I guess it's just less, less than 26. It's yeah. less than 26. It's not that much. But even 26, like there's residents out there who will start their day, let's say at 8 a.m., work until 8 a.m. the next day, and then stay until noon, even later, even to like 4 or 5 p.m. the next day. So what is that, like 36 hours we're getting on now? So, and they'll do that voluntarily because the, the official kind of resident union, it's called PERO in Ontario, you have to leave after 26 hours, but 
there's no there's no one there who's going to kick you out like it's a, it's of your own volition you have to say like okay it's actually time for me to go now and that um stepping up for yourself is going to be quite difficult for some people either because they actually want to stay like let's say they're in the or operating room and they get to operate and they're really excited because they're a surgical resident and they want to stay fine or they're kind of timid and they don't want to rub anyone the wrong way and they don't want to leave because those perceptions matter. I bet you, like, I bet you, if I said, "Hey, it's 26, I'm gonna leave," you're like, "Wow, what a like clock watcher!" Like, yeah. this guy doesn't want to put out. They for sure matter. Yeah. For sure, yeah, because you never want to be perceived as the resident who doesn't work hard or the resident that doesn't care or anything like that. Let's go back to weightlifting for a second. I notice now I am more self-critical of how I look than mm-hmm. I was before, and so there's an example where like I put on jeans that day. I'm like, man, my legs are looking kind of skinny today. And then I went to the office and as I'm walking, a friend saw me and he ran up to me and said, hi. He's like, yeah, I was thinking like, man, that guy's quads are jacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought maybe it's navier. And I was like, dude, literally today I thought they were skinny. Right? And it's <laughs> kind of weird because like they couldn't have been any bigger yeah. than, uh, than, than they are now because yeah. I've never used my legs this much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would imagine that Call it a body image issue, really. Like, did you experience that in, in figure skating um, or in weightlifting? Yeah, I mean, from the female perspective, it's it's not. Uh, oh my, my legs look small. It's my legs look big, and that's the difference between the two. I think. I mean, I was always an athletic person. Figure skating, I was obviously much younger, um, and I was pretty, you know, tall and, and slim and a good fit for the sport. And as I aged, uh, things changed a bit, and picked up weightlifting. Things changed even more. Um, and now I have, I mean, a pretty athletic looking figure, which I worked hard for. So it's not, it's not that I, I don't, I'm not happy. It's more just that it's different than the typical, typical person, typical girl. So that difference is sometimes hard to close the gap on. It's getting with things like buying clothes or talking with friends about, uh, about things. I mean, it's not like an issue I spend a lot of time having anxiety about or worrying about, but it's definitely there, I would say. And most females have something. Like if you ask a girl, like, what are you insecure about? She'll have an answer. So for me, it's it's no different. I think weightlifting feeds into that a little bit and that it does change your body. And, you know, it doesn't make you masculine, but it makes you more masculine than you would have been without any weight training. And that, I mean, that's that's debatable because uh, it's a touchy, it's a touchy issue. Um, for most, for most women, I find the sport, but on the whole, it's great. It makes you fit. It makes you look great, but it does change you in ways that sometimes people don't expect. And I mean, even my own family, um, they notice athletic changes and they would comment like, Oh, you know, you look really strong. But the way they would say it would be like kind of more of a negative connotation. It's like a euphemism for, well, yeah. you look really big. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's not like, like, you, a... like your legs are so strong now, Laura. Yeah. And it wasn't like, Wow, you're actually fucking strong. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. like oh, maybe go back a bit. Not in the weightlifting community because we can very much recognize like what we respect in our yeah. community, which is like big legs, big traps, or whatever, yeah. right? Um, so I guess maybe the hospital is a good setting because they're sort of a more general population. Mm-hmm. Do you do you see that like your colleagues will look at you a little bit differently or not recognize your figure as both a product of hard work and they admire it versus like I don't know if the hospital is a good place. I'm or... very not focused on my appearance at the hospital. And half of them I'm wearing scrubs. Yeah. And scrubs are very like pajamas. Yeah. They're just they're in twenty hours in you're probably looking miserable <laughs> yeah, regardless. Like, oh, <laughs> shit anyways. Um I know what you're saying though, I think 
to the general people. I, I yeah, what know. do you do? You experience anything like um, good or bad? I mean, something's like like jean shopping, for example. The store lady will be like, "Oh, those will will totally fit or whatever." I'll be like, "I'll know mine." I'll be like, "No, like they won't." Yeah. Like, trust me. Like, I have quads, and like I'll be in Lululemon, like an athletic store, and then the sales lady will be like, "Oh, I know, I have quads too," and I'll look at her and I'll be like, "Honey, honey, <laughs> no." Um, I don't know. It's it's not. Uh, it is what it is. Like it's it's a product of hard work ultimately. Yeah. So it's not anything to be ashamed of. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice being different can cause some some anxiety. And I know it's different for a guy for sure. Yeah. But like I now am way more confident about who I am. Yeah. In, in part due to weightlifting, I'm like it yeah. is a hard sport. Yeah. It is, it is intense, mm-hmm. like actually, and it's also perceived as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's different if it's like figure skating. People don't perceive it as intense, but I oh, it's saw, still intense. I just saw an show recently, mean, right? Yeah. Like, and I go, "Holy smokes! Those <laughs> yeah. people have bigger legs than me, and I'm supposed to be the one with big legs, right?" Yeah, yeah. So it's like weightlifting is perceived as intense, and it actually yeah. is. And like, I am super proud of the way I look, mm-hmm. uh, but it's like it fits in with the masculine mold. Whereas yeah, it does. It doesn't. It's the opposite, yeah. and that's kind of the fundamental difference. Yeah, and I. Yeah, it's really nice to see though now that shift in uh, maybe jean shopping. Now there are companies that have stretchy jeans. Yeah, some better yeah. than others, but it's like wow, there's like a, sort of like a social movement by by way of like CrossFit and I don't know yeah, whatever. CrossFit definitely right. It just it's yeah. like look, it's important to be fit mm-hmm. and 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 that and healthy in that way. And so let's have these products that yeah benefit. Not your typical person because we really are outliers. We think we're kind of the norm, but we're, yeah. we're not. Yeah. Um, because I remember I went to Hong Kong to get a custom tailored suit. And so this guy was measuring me. And then when I went for my first fitting after that, I was like, wow, these pants do not fit. Like I can't even lift my leg up six inches. How can yeah. I even go on a bus? Right. Like yeah. can't. And he's like, Oh no, it's fine. I'm like, bro, trust me. It doesn't work. And he's like, trust me. It works. Let me, let me, let me find you a, a pants suit that I've made for someone else. That's going to be, um, whatever waist, uh, sorry, uh, circumference around your leg. Mm-hmm. Then it will be too big. And I was like, okay. And I was like, by the way, like the waist is 30 and we wanted the legs to be whatever. And he's trying to find the pantsuit. And I was like, I know you won't find it because yeah. I'm not the norm. Yeah, yeah. So he ended up finding a pantsuit that was like, you would fit my legs and the waist was obviously way too big. Yeah, and I was like, okay, that barely yeah. feels okay. Yeah. That's why I'm here yeah. for this custom, custom like tailored suit. Yeah. Because I can't shop for me in like, a, mm-hmm. in a, in an almost feel like at the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh you're right. We kind of see it as like, oh yeah, it's someone else with quads, but it is compared to the general population, it is different. Yeah. I think even more so for women. Yeah, I wonder whether or not because obviously I'm so involved in this community now, it's mm-hmm. hard to be able to step back more objectively. Mm-hmm. But now I look at a guy or a girl who has quads and traps and a girl mm, respect for sure because it tells for me sure. something, and like yeah. to me that looks beautiful. Yeah, like guy or girl, like it's yeah. it's fine. Like I I want to know what someone actually thinks who's not in the sport and 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 what's going on in their head i i think it's a range from from same as us like oh you know i appreciate that work to actually thinking like wow that girl is actually like manly or bulky is like the words that are tossed around most often um with women and it's crazy because like we are more fit than the average person and we have similar sort of like body image issues and i i wish i could speak to it more academically but i do have a friend who studies sort of like body image issues yeah. as it relates to sort of mental well-being mm-hmm. um, she actually has some research uh 
being talked about in Elle magazine because mm-hmm. there was she was focused on this idea of self compassion of okay. how that can just make you more uh, adjusted to to not looking what you think other people think are, are beautiful and being mm-hmm. self-accepting. Mm-hmm. And like, I can't speak to it, you know, what self-compassion versus this other thing, but I think it's something to do with just accepting who you are and not... Because yeah. I think the other... Because I went to her talk and like, a typical strategy is like a downward social comparison where mm-hmm. you go, um, like, I'm fat, but I'm not as fat as her. Yeah. Right. And that makes you feel better. Yeah. But she found at least like some evidence that self compassion worked just as good. Mm. And maybe just arguments, like ethical or moral arguments around just compassion is better than trying to put someone else down. Mm-hmm. Or to, I mean, you'd think make, that'd be nicer, but yeah. who knows? I don't know. But there, yeah. yeah. So it was a, like, I wish I knew more about this research because, like, yeah. coming from Wales, I was like, oh, we see it too. Yeah. Even though it's counterintuitive. Like, yeah. We feel bad about what we worked so hard for yeah like that shouldn't be the case yeah it's it's a complex thing i mean i think ultimately weightlifting is super empowering especially for women i think that benefit will grossly outweigh any kind of suspected body image issue at least for me so i think like you know having 200 plus pounds above your head is a freaking amazing feeling and uh, i'll chase that feeling way more than i'll chase you know fitting into those teams which is and it really like it's nice when you have such an objective way to, to measure your progress, measure your progress, and yeah. to uh, judge someone. Let's mm-hmm. call it like I don't care if you're a guy or a girl. If you do weightlifting fairly well, there's respect. Yeah, for sure. And I and yeah. I don't care what the number is. If if you if you just show up mm-hmm. and kind of put in that work, I'm like there. It speaks to your character and your work ethic mm-hmm. that other things can't. Um, or or at least for me, like because I'm I respect that sport as well. So it's like I don't care if you're a guy or a girl, like. My coach, um, Christine, or head coach, right? Like, she still lifts more than me. Yeah. And she's a girl, and she's mm-hmm. in a lighter weight class. Yeah. So it's like, nice. okay, so yeah. like, what could you possibly say about, like, boys being stronger than girls? It's like, yeah. not in this instance. Like, <laughs> yeah. she's sure she's a top-level athlete, but yeah. Um, but there's just going to be respect all around. And it must be, it must feel very empowering. And it must be feel very confident when you can walk into a, a good like gym knowing that yeah, you can lift yeah. more, more than all these guys yeah. yeah for sure or you can do it with more technique, technique. Yeah. yeah for sure and yeah it definitely comes with the figure skating world which is more subjective was a nice change in some ways too because there is an objective component to skating and that you get like program scores for each element but then there's a huge subjective component so straying away from that has been pretty nice to be honest yeah it's the most raw way to judge yeah, someone, it's like, did right? they lift more? Do they not? Yeah, yeah, it's just the number, right? Like, yeah. and then if not number, based off of weight class or 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 the 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 weight you weighed in, and, yeah. right? That's that's so objective. Like, mm-hmm. I was better than you that day because I lifted more. There is mm-hmm. no, you know, she was more artistic. Yeah, or, there's none of that. Yeah, right? so it helps. Nice. Uh, do you feel like weightlifting makes you more confident as a doctor? Like putting yourself through a physical, like I see you train and you train hard. So it's like, yeah, if I can do that, oh, like I mean, I know. You know, Dr. Mom, please, but does it give you an extra, you know, spring in your step? I, I think more so because of the mental strength you get from weightlifting than physical. I mean, physical, yeah, it's nice to have. I know if I'm, you know, doing a procedure on a patient or reducing an arm, I have the physical strength to do that, which some girls don't, actually. <laughs> but it's more the mental fortitude of going to training, getting through those, you know, endless reps of poles that are breaking your back, not obviously not literally, but, you know, figuratively kind of breaking your mind and getting through it, that mental strength, I think, is more applicable to medicine than the physical. 
I was trying to compare, let's say, you winning a competition, um, mm-hmm. weightlifting competition, or a PR. Like you set your your mind that you want to clean jerk 100 kilos. Yeah. Oh, and do. when and and you, and you do, yeah, <laughs> and it's like that out of nowhere. So like you have that goal, and you you work really hard to try and get it, and then that moment you get it, and how you feel um, mentally and physically. Compare that to how you uh, felt when you finished medical school and became a doctor. Mm-hmm. That was just sort of like the doctor aspect is like it's just completely mental, right? It's completely in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, but then with the uh, the physical aspects of, of goal setting and, and goal achieving. Mm-hmm. There's physical and mental. Mm-hmm. And I think that helps you feel something different. Mm-hmm. Like, cause it's, there's a lot of mental aspect to, you know, pushing through pain and, and all that, all the mm-hmm. hours that you put in and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's also the physical element. So it's like those two together, you get in physical, you know, feats. Mm-hmm. But when you go through just, you know, an academic program, there's, Really, no physical aspect to it, so it's almost like just purely based on 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 the two. You have more when you do a physical thing, mm-hmm. but this I I don't know. Like it's I'm not I'm not wording it eloquently. I'm still trying to work through <laughs> this idea, but it's like like yeah. I um I did a trivia event with my friends one time about my life. Okay, and I I was like, what two things uh make me cry? And it's uh, Olympics and like military stuff. Okay, because I feel like it's. It's so relatable, the rawness of the emotion you see someone display when they win a race or yeah. they win a, a, a yeah. heat, get a PR or whatever, mm-hmm. or when they put you some physical training that uh, that is meant to break you and somehow you just keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And it, it's so relatable that you can't just get it if you're like, oh, you got a PhD, that's nice, or you got a doctorate, yeah. degree, that's nice, you're an MD, but it's more relatable. But I think there's something about physical and mental versus just mental that helps push you through some experience that like makes it so much more worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would imagine that that would help you in other aspects of your life. Yeah, push you pain. I think I think having a sport to work towards and get better at is beneficial in way more ways than just being good at the sport, for sure. Or just like I, I'm, I talked to Chris just before I came here. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, my guests so far have been a pretty good split in terms of people who lift and people who don't. Okay, but now you've tipped it over to three who lived <laughs> and, left, and two yeah. who don't, I think. Um, oh no, four, four, well, four to one. So it's oh, like, wow, okay. I don't want that to be the undertone of like this podcast. So like, yeah. as we move forward, I'm trying to find a range of guests that yeah. aren't just into wheelchair, but it's like yeah. something about doing something you're passionate about and mm-hmm. it being very difficult and kind of pushing through some of those challenges should yeah. help build some mental tenacity in other aspects of your life. For it sure. doesn't have to be physical. For sure. It's a hard sport. It's a really hard sport to keep showing up at and putting in the effort but uh same thing you know he's going to show up to medical school put in the effort yeah it was a. Uh, I heard this story on one of rogan's podcasts and it was about like this creative process and i mentioned mm-hmm. the story a couple episodes ago as well but the guy was like you know writing uh, a joke because he's a stand-up he's a stand-up comic uh, writing a joke is a lot like opening a store mm-hmm. sometimes you'll show up and open your store and nobody's there but you still have to open your store because that's your job. But other days you'll open up your store, same behavior, but like you, you just, it's, people are coming and going and people are buying things and it's a busy day, but it all started up with that effort. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. it's, it's difficult. You just have to show up. But yeah. Just show up doing some other thing that's mm-hmm. your passion and, and just kind of push through some of those obstacles and being sort of familiar and comfortable with the fact that there are 
challenges and setbacks of what yep. you do. Or like, yep. like, just just show up. Yeah, just show so, up. Yeah, yeah got me through a lot. Yeah. So, um, so I think we're gonna wrap this up soon. So I'll leave the the next couple of minutes just to have you share some advice with a younger self of you or someone else who might have been in your shoes, uh, like keen on being medical school or keen on going into to a graduate school or even just like undergrad mm -hmm. or anything else you'd just like to bestow on our audience. Definitely put in the work and prepare and know what you're getting into. It's is only possible to a point. But the same token, try not to stress about things you can't control because with so much of the applicants courses in medical school, it was so much under my control. Um, and, and obviously I stressed about it because I, what else was I going to do? It's hard to just not stress, but things that you can't control, just, it's just a time waster versus spending more time on preparing for the interview or studying or doing something else instead. So it's kind of a cliche, but, uh, I think it would have served me a bit, served me well. Siobhan was on the third episode and we had talked about something like that. Yeah. And she said, this is an exercise that she does with kids. Mm -hmm. So you draw a handprint or shape of your hand and then you write everything you can control inside your hand yeah and then you write everything that you can't control outside your hand yeah. and so those things are the things that you really want to try and not worry about because mm -hmm. it, it's completely out of your volition or agency to be able to change mm -hmm. so you do your best to prepare the things that are you know inside that hand and yeah. you just kind of have to let the rest go to yeah uh, go to fate it's but, tough it's tough when you want something so bad yeah yeah and I wish it was, I wish it was, it was an easy way to develop that. Like, it's okay. It's a learned skill. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the hard thing. Um, but just being able to recognize that. Mm-hmm. Or you can just label it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for hosting me in your nice loft. No worries. And that's it. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the podcast. Now, one of the things that Laura and I didn't get to speak about in the podcast was her application process when it came to applying for residency. We only talked about it after we recorded the podcast that it wasn't as smooth as what her process was like getting into medical school. And so that was something that I kind of wanted to be able to ask is, you know, she had a very, what I would imagine to be an atypical experience in terms of knowing what she wanted and then having all the right stones in place in terms of grades and working hard and then probably a little bit of luck to get into medical school. So that was very smooth and atypical. When we talked about uh, residency afterwards, how that process works is, you know, you finish up a medical school and then you start to apply to be a resident doctor in various hospitals across Canada. And I don't remember exactly which hospitals or programs she wanted to get into, but essentially there were a few programs that she really, really wanted. And I think a lot of people wanted as well. And so in terms of her top choices of residencies she wanted, she didn't get any of them. And that was rather devastating for her. I wanted to bring this up because um, part of the theme around this podcast is to sort of normalize obstacles and challenges and adversity. And so when we talked about Laura's uh, experiences getting into medical school in the first place, it was rather smooth, though we don't know obviously how she felt and the anxiety around it. But, you know, it was a pretty straightforward process. But afterwards, um, we just kind of talked offline and she told me that, yeah, when she applied to residency, she did experience a bit of that adversity and, you know, kind of failure because she didn't get any of the top choices that she wanted. She is very happy with where she is now because Grand River Hospital has a really good family medicine or something like that. So she's in a, still a very solid program and something that she's going to benefit a lot from and a lot of people recognize as Grand River Hospital having a really good program for whatever she's in. But, you know, just another idea that her process 
isn't that smooth and in certain parts of it you're going to experience some sort of setback so i just wanted to share that with you guys as well i appreciate everyone's continued support continue to share the links and uh you know reach out to me if there's certain topics you'd like to hear more about once again thank you so much for tuning in see you guys